Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Sitting here with Peter Jeffrey, uh, Peter's been a, a pastor of three congregations. Um, he's had a worldwide preaching ministry. Um, I first heard him in the United States, and uh, he's been somewhat of a mentor uh, to me and others. And I just want to uh, thank Peter for this opportunity to sit down and pick his brain and to pass on things. Paul had many things in uh, the book of First and Second Timothy, particularly Second Timothy. He was trying to pass on. Um, wisdom, advice, a few things that um, Timothy needed to know, uh, equipment that he needed to take hold of and, and learn to use. So we're here today to do that and to ask uh, Peter Jeffrey, um, after really having a career that spanned decades, um, seeing a move of the spirit in rugby uh, that was very powerful, and just asking him uh, what advice he can give us. Peter Lloyd-Jones called preaching uh, a romance, and he entitled a chapter of his book, The Romance of Preaching. Um, can you briefly summarize your romance with the pulpit over the course of your preaching career? Well, yes, I think it's a very apt title. I mean, the thing about preaching is that you never know what's going to happen when you start. I think the doctor said once that, uh, the Dr. Lloyd-Jones, that you never, got, you never got a clue what's going to happen when you get up to the pulpit, steps into the pulpit. Either they can go flat, or God can take over and you're away. But the romance of preaching, I suppose, started for me just about a week after I was converted. I was converted 55 years ago last Saturday, hmm. May 21st, 1955. The week after, on a Friday night, I gave my testimony in an open-air meeting in Pen- Penadre in Nice. And um, that was the first time I'd ever spoken publicly. And then soon after that, I was asked to give a testimony in, in, in a Sunday service in the church. And I, I immediately said yes, because I was just bubbling with, it, with enthusiasm at that time. And immediately I said yes, I regretted it. I thought, oh, blow me. <laughs> the, the nerves kicked in. I thought, well, speaking in the open air was one thing. Speaking in a church was, was another thing. And I was petrified as to what to say. And then I discovered um, Luke twelve twelve. Well, Jesus said to the apostles, Fear not what you shall say, for the Holy Spirit shall give you the words in the same hour. Now, I know now that I, that I, I was taking that verse completely out of context. But at that time, it was a great encouragement to me. And I, the Holy Spirit did give me the words. And um, I think that many in the church said he gave me too many words, perhaps, because the testimony went on a bit longer than the, the, they expected. <laughs> but from that time on, um, within about six months of that, I was preaching. I was only 18, and um, the joy of preaching was there then. I didn't know much about preaching. I didn't know enough really to be preaching. But God was there, and God was beginning to teach me. I remember hearing stories about uh, the time that God moved very powerfully in rugby. Uh, When I went and visited there years ago, um, one of the elders told me that 
they can remember you running into the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Can you talk about that? Well, I can't remember that. Um, probably did, I don't know. But uh, there were some Sundays in rugby which were quite phenomenal. There were times in rugby, you know, we knew something of the power of the Spirit. There's no question about that. And there were some Sundays when I was preaching, and I was as if I was in the congregation listening to myself preaching. I can't explain it. But I was just sitting down listening, and, God, and I was still preaching. It was an amazing sort of experience. And... Um, and God spoke in, in, in amazing ways in rugby. Hmm. And, um, and there were some Sundays which were quite, quite unusual. God blessed and God spoke. And God always speaks through his word, you see. I remember one Sunday morning in rugby, um, a lady for me early, about 8 o'clock on the Sunday morning, saying she had three very serious problems she needed to talk over with me. And I said, well, see me after the service this morning and we'll, we'll arrange a meeting. And um, I preached, and after the service, she came to the door, sh and she said, there's no need to st for me to see you now, Pastor, she said. My three problems were answered in your sermon. Hmm. Now, I still don't know what the problems were, but God did, huh. and God answered the problems through the preaching. That's what preaching is. Hmm. It isn't just um, someone spouting off. It's God speaking, Amen. and God spoke to that woman that day, and God answered her problems, quite to my ignorance. Would you say that uh, many people that are uh, preaching today have lost a sense of uh, what preachers maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, had a sense of that preaching was meant to be prophetic? Well, I think many preachers have lost a lot of things today in preaching. Um, I'm preaching the into my 70s now, sometimes I look back and I think, oh, preaching isn't like it really used to be. And I think, now stop now, careful boy, don't be committing the cardinal sin of an old man and comparing things now and then. <laughs> but it's true, I think, I hear some preachers today and they give nice homilies and they give reasonable words, I suppose, in a sense. But there's no bite in the preaching, there's no prophetic element in the sense that God is speaking through this word, that mm -hmm. God is coming to us. You see, I, I, I've got this belief. I, I'm more and more convinced now as I go on. And I mean, I'm at the stage now, I'm speaking to you, Peyton. I was in church last Sunday, and that was the first time in five months I've been able to go to church. So I haven't learned much preaching mm. for the last five months. But uh, it was good to, to hear the preaching last Sunday, very good sermon. But I come to the point where I think, that, well, where is this sense of God? Mm. I think when you come from a church on a Sunday service, the question you want to know is, have I met with God? Hmm. Have I met with God? Was God there? Did God touch my heart? Did God speak to my soul? And I think this is missing somehow. Hmm. We seem to be not quite happy clappy, but, but silly sometimes. And the whole service seems to be too jovial sometimes. And there's no sense, or little sense, of God. The awesomeness of God, the wonder of God, the holiness of God, the majesty hmm. of God. When that comes, wow, things happen then. Mm. I think that that's probably the hardest thing to manufacture. You can manufacture the rest, but that's the one thing that you mm. you can't manufacture. And I think sometimes we have substitutes for having God there. When you first began to notice your preaching change, in other words, you felt that power come down. Mm. Well, 
I remember a time for me where preaching began to change, and ironically, it's probably why I'm sitting here, it was uh, in Elisa Viejo, California, at uh, a church that you were speaking at. Um, it was a Sunday night, and the sense of God came upon a Southern California congregation in a way that I had never seen before, though I'd gone to this church for years and listened to the preacher there. You finished preaching, and the congregation didn't move for almost two minutes, which for Southern California is very, very rare. But when you preach, it was almost as if the Holy Spirit had dropped a bomb there, and everybody was mm -hmm. a bit shell-shocked. Do you remember that night? <laughs> I'll tell you something about when I, when I went to rugby, my preaching changed. I'd been nine years preaching in Cumbran, and I was, a, I suppose, a good preacher, I don't know, but nothing unusual. There were, there were 30, 40, 50 like me in South Wales. But um, I went to rugby, and something happened. Something happened. I remember a missionary came to visit us in rugby, a friend of mine, and um, we did lots of converse. A lot of young boys converted off the drug scene, off the streets, and she, she was speaking in the prayer meeting, and I, I could see her afterwards down the front talking to a crowd of these boys. And boy, mm. boy, they were men in their mid-twenties. And she came up to me and she said, Peter, can I ask you a question? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Mm. And me, thinking of tongues and, and, and that sort of stuff, oh, no, I said, I haven't done that. But looking back, I think I had. I never spoke in tongues. We never knew healings or anything like that. But something happened to the preaching that is only explicable in terms of God came there. Mm. God came on the preaching. Now, I didn't know that again till I went to America. And I felt in America I was beginning to know something again of the power. Of, I was in rugby 14 years, mm. and we had this mostly through the 70s into the early 80s. But then preaching in America, preaching at uh, Pacific Hills, was that the church you were talking yeah. about? Yeah. In, Cal in Los Angeles. We do great services in, in, in that church, absolute phenomenal services. Mm. And um, and God was amazing in, in, in the power that came on the preaching. You see, any good preacher can preach a good sermon. And more often than not, will preach a good sermon, mm. if he's a good preacher. But it takes the Spirit of God to come on to make a mighty sermon, mm. and to make a word that rivets and captures and dominates and controls and rivets people. And um, we knew that in rugby. Praise God for that. And I've known it something about in America, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. You were in the churches in Long Island, in New York, and certainly in uh, Pacific Hills and, uh, and churches there. God was good. I can remember sitting uh, there that night. I had been in ministry for uh, maybe one or two years and had preached since not long after I got converted. But I remember having the impression there that night Whatever I had been doing before wasn't preaching, and everything for me began to change. I would say the the first uh, step, and that's that's probably why uh, we're here doing this interview right now, is because uh, we can do so much on our own, uh, but we need that extra bit, and I think that's something that you've uh, had an experience with. What would you say is the most important or most valuable thing for a man to remember while he's in that pulpit? He's in the pulpit for the benefit of the congregation. You know, God, yeah, for the praise and honor and glory of God. That goes without saying. But he's there for the benefit of the congregation. He's not there to demonstrate his own abilities. 
or I'll show how good he is as an orator. He's there so that these people might be edified, they might be drawn closer to God. A sermon, you see, confronts people with God, or it should confront the people with God, the living God. Mm. And you should always remember in the pub, he's there for their sake. Not that they're not there just to listen to him. He's there for their sake. Mm. And if he remembers that, I, I, I found over the years, and particularly again in rugby, I had a rapport with the congregation. I could speak to them as if I was speaking to, to you now across mm. the room here. And, um, and they would respond to that. No, you, you don't get that all the time. You don't get that with some congregations, certainly. But certainly I did then. And, um, and, 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 and you, you really feel you want to help these people. Mm. You want to draw them closer to God. You want to show them God. You see, you prepare a sermon, and sometimes, well, it's okay. But then you get into the pulpit and it takes off. Mm. It just takes off. There's no question about that. And sometimes you prepare a sermon and, and your own heart is warmed. I mean, I've been in you, you, you've been the same, I'm sure, pain. You're preparing a sermon and tears are in on your face as you're writing the sermon. And, um, and you, and you just rejoice and, uh, and you just pray that you have that same blessing in the pulpit on Sunday yeah. morning. And that's what we want. We want a sense of God. Mm. We want a sense of God. It isn't, the preaching isn't to, whether it's contemporary or traditional, it's to please God. And if it pleases God, it'll please the people. I've asked you this question before. And I know it's a very difficult question, um, probably one that you don't have the entire answer for. Otherwise, you'd probably be uh, very rich marketing it. But uh, if if we knew this question, we could probably answer everything else. But what would be the best advice that you could give a young man in securing the anointing of the Spirit mm-hmm. on his preaching? And I and obviously that's not for uh, mm-hmm. once in his lifetime, but for. Um, it's it's a daily thing and a weekly thing. It's every time he steps in the pulpit, I suppose. But w- what's been the thing that's been most helpful to you to help secure the anointing of the Spirit? Well, I don't know. There's so many things, isn't there? I always had a fear of God in in, in the sense that I, I would fear to offend God by what I'm saying in the pulpit, by not just the content of the word, but by my manner in the pulpit. Um, God's got to be in the front. God's got to be honoured. God's got to be top. And we're only little boys uh, <laughs> trying that to be, be for his glory. And I think cultivate this fear of God, where God is real, where God is real to you in the study, and if he's real in the study when, you, mm. when you're alone with him, who's it said a man is what he is when he's on his knees alone with God? Was it machines in it? And that's true, you say. When you're on your knees alone, because that's what you are. And you'll be no more than that. You can parade in the pulpit. You can be an actor in the pulpit. And that's no good to anybody. But you need to be alone with God. You need the power of God. And when you come into the pulpit, God is there. And God being there. Preachers, I believe, are born, not made. you either got the gift of preaching or you haven't got the gift. If you've got it, it can be developed. And it must be developed. And um, also, many things can go towards that development. But the, but uh, but but nothing substitutes for the sense of God, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, yeah, that's true in any any part of the Christian life. You see, whether you're in the pulpit or out of the pulpit, but it's um, perhaps it's something we're lacking today. There was an old preacher that uh, was asked, "How long did it take you to prepare that sermon?" That's the most amazing sermon I've I've ever heard, and it might have been Machine again, but he said, "All my life," and. Yeah. Can you talk about the preacher's consistent prayer life 
and walk with God as preparation for service. Well, I always felt my prayer life wasn't anything like what it ought to be, and it wasn't as consistent as it ought to be. But I used to, my 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 days in the ministry, I, I would spend from about half past eight till nine o'clock, till twelve o'clock, every morning in the study. Half past eight till twelve every morning in the study, just me and the Bible, and alone with God. Afternoons, I'd be out visiting evening meetings. That was my pattern. Um, but you, you, you want to be, you want to cultivate this sense of God. And that's got to be worked at. I mean, it doesn't come easy. I wish I knew more of God. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, I, I just need to make shine again on them. What's that prayer machine, right? Lord, make me as holy as it's possible for a sinful man to be. Wow, goodness thing, isn't it? I mean, that's a thought, isn't it? As holy as it's possible for a sinful man to be. But it's crucial, isn't it? Absolutely crucial. Yeah, and McShane, I mean, he was born dead at 22, and um, dead at 29. But what he accomplished in that seven years of phenomenon? Because I'm sure God answered that prayer. As God answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom, he answered that prayer for holiness with McShane, and many other things as well. But that's what made him the man he was. And what we are, to any degree, will be governed by that. Hmm. Well, I'm amazed that you're talking about holiness, because that was my next question, was to discuss personal holiness in connection with the preaching ministry and the influence that it has on the effectiveness of your preaching. Hmm. Any further thoughts that you have on that? Well, holiness is to be set apart for God to worship God, to want to please God. It's to cultivate a life that's honoring to God. Um, and as far as the preacher is concerned, that comes first. Mm. I'm trying to think of the verse in Ezra. Ezra 7, 10, something. Ezra read the scriptures. He sought to know them. Then he sought to live them. Mm. Then Only then did he preach them. Those were the three things. He read the scriptures, he lived the scriptures, he preached the scriptures. Hmm. Now, we've got to know the Bible, but we've got to live the Bible too. And that's what holiness is, it's living the Bible. And when you're living it, then the preaching comes out of that. Yeah. Preaching is it should be an overflow, not a scraping at the bottom of the barrel, but an overflow of meeting with God. Um, now, because of my health, I've been unable to preach for the last couple of years. And um, I miss that. But uh, even if you can't preach, you can still know God. Mm. Hmm. Do you ever get the sense of, uh, if I had the body <laughs> of a young man and the heart and the mind of an old man, I could do some damage? Do some damage to me, I think. <laughs> you know, I... I I, I look back now, I've I, I been preaching for over 50 years, and that's why I can't grumble, I've had a good run of that. But um, I wish I had the energy to preach today. And the breath, I mean, I can't do it at the moment, mm. but I wish I had it. I wish to get up into the pulpit, and and when I hear a man preach, I think, oh, I wish I could do that again. Um, and when I hear a sermon on the tape or something, you know, I, if I hear one of my own sermons, perhaps on, on a CD, and I think, oh, I wish I could be like that again. <laughs> but, um, oh, yes, uh, you, you, you wish you could be better, better, mm. and better again. Mm. 
I once heard Warren Wiersbe say that God wouldn't allow him to become content with his own preaching because he knew if he did that he would never improve. And do you, do you see that the, the spirit sanctifies a preacher in his, in his preaching life, much like he does his personal life? But you can't be content with your own preaching. I think the best, best. Lloyd Jones just said, didn't he? He wouldn't go across the road to hear himself preaching. <laughs> well, I think he was wrong. I didn't go across the road to hear him preach. But, um, but you see, you see what he was saying. Mm. He knew his place and, the, and, um, is he, I look at Wales and my generation of preachers, and almost all of them could preach it like I can. There was something about us. That, there wasn't just a, there was a bit of passion, there was a bit of fire in the belly. And um, now some knew more blessing than others, but that's God's business, isn't it? Um, but um, I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. I've been fr- fr- privileged in, in three pastorates to know something of the mercies of God in in, in, in preaching and conversions and, uh, mm. and but I still wanted more I, I would go sometimes in the, in the ministry plus a couple of weeks without conversions a couple of months and that is still worry me terrible yeah I believe that the gospel is meant to save and it ought to save and if it isn't saving then the preacher starts by asking what's wrong with me not, wrong, well, not what's wrong with the congregation but what's wrong with me it starts it starts there it's interesting that because I think a lot of people want to point the finger at God these days and um, cop out really on the sovereignty of God where although the sovereignty of God is true there's a responsibility if you look to your life and doctrine Mm. you'll save both yourself and your hearers and um, that's probably one of the things that uh, as an older man now looking um, feeling a bit probably like Paul who was in prison, a bit limited, um, but having the same passion, Paul began a writing ministry. And I suppose that's probably to a certain degree um, really been helpful for you to to still, at a certain point, feel that outlet for preaching and getting the Word of God out there. But you've also been taking in a lot. You've mentioned that you've had an opportunity to listen uh, to loads of preaching Listening to a lot of the preaching that's uh, now as these younger men are having their run, what would you say are some of the pitfalls consistently uh, as society's changing and preachers to a certain degree uh, will change to adapt to that? Um, what are some of the pitfalls that you see and some of the strengths that you've seen? Because I know you've talked about those as well. What are some of the pitfalls? I think that can be Too much of a lightness and a glibness about some preachers, as if they're looking for the laugh, you know. I feel sometimes, um, with a joke in the sermon, that's okay. But when it's scripted in, you know, they used to say about Churchill when he's speaking in, 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 in Parliament, he used to, on his notes, pause for laughter. It's all orchestrated. Well, I don't think preaching is orchestrated at all. And uh, we need to see that that the word flow, let ourselves flow with God. And um, if it's too orchestrated, too rigid, then it's good in a sense of being right and accurate, but it's powerless and it's cold. And I don't want to move people's minds, I want to move their hearts. Mm. 
and you move their hearts by preaching for their hearts. I don't know, you know, oh, you know, you look back and I mean, you look and say, what on earth have I done in 50 years of preaching? And other times you look back and you come across people mm -hmm. and, and they've been saved and uh, and you come across their children who've been saved and uh, you praise God for that, you see. Mm -hmm. And you just thank God, well, something's happened anyway. You said you, you, you aim for their heart, you preach for their heart. How would, how would you tell somebody this is how you preach to their heart? You know, Spurgeon said a man will never be saved until he's moved in his heart, until, until his emotions are stirred. Now, it's easy to preach correctly for a man's mind, but how do you preach to stir his emotions? Well, it's not by filling the story with filling the sermon with silly stories about sick children, you know, and things like that, and sentimental stories. That's the work of an actor. It's not the work of a preacher. It's by just preaching the Scriptures, opening the Scriptures, let God speak through the Scriptures. I'm a great believer in expository preaching. I believe in expository preaching. You let the Scriptures speak. Um, I've always been a man of the text, you know. Mm. My first words in the book are always, my text this morning is, mm. and, and I give a text out, and I stick with the text, and I try as far as possible to expound that text. And that'll touch people's hearts if, 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 if there's real power on it. Mm. That'll touch their hearts. Hmm. So it's really just allowing the Word of God to speak. Yeah. And would you say there's great stock in, before having the heart moved to someone else, as a preacher, your own heart has to be moved? Well, you're not going to move anybody else's heart until your own heart is moved. Um, oh, yes, this is why that time alone with God in preparation is so, so important. Mm. I believe in the sovereignty of God in, in all things, but God gives a responsibility to the preacher to be alone with him and to work at it. I'm quoting Lloyd-Jones again. <laughs> he said to us one, one time, he said, You men think my sermons come down from heaven on a silver plate on Sunday night brought by an angel to be the preacher. They don't, he said, I've got to work, I've got to work. And he did work, and um, and we've got to work. Mm. And we've got to study. Now, study, I mean, I know, I mean, I've never been one to be able to get stuck into the Puritans, for instance, you know. I found them a bit heavy going. <laughs> but, um, but there are some people who help you, some people who move you. Towards that always move me. And um, people like that who move your own heart. And if your own heart is moved, well, you've got a chance of reaching the hearts of the congregation. So part of the job of the study is to move the preacher's heart and to, to give the preacher some fire. Yeah. Art is already called uh, that time in the office um, at a desk um, with the Word of God. He called it the sacred study, that it was just as important, if not more so, than mm. the time in the pulpit. Uh, because a, a, a lot of the, the greater part of the work was done there in preparation. What would you say will transform just a, a dry, lifeless preparation for a sermon into an on-fire, um, heartwarming, heart-burning, fire-in-my-bones kind of message? Oh, I don't know. There are some, some times in the study you can spend three hours there and you haven't gone further than the end of your nose, really. <laughs> you haven't got anywhere. And, you and you know, it's like that sometimes you... You can't even know where you're going to preach from, what text, what passage, hmm. what subject. Um, 
And yet God does undertake. <laughs> he undertakes every week. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, most preachers are preaching three times a week uh, to their own people, not, not out visiting someone else. Sunday mornings in the evening and a prophet Bible study in the week. I was doing that three times a week. Mm. It's a lot of preparation. And uh, there are times when you grow weary of preparation. Um, but you've got to keep at it and at it and at it. Um, did you have a method in your preparation? Like, did you, uh, some preachers say that they um, read the text, you know, X amount of times or memorize it. Others say that they go for a walk around the block and meditate on it. Did you have a, a method or you would consult this work first, you would meditate first, you would meditate after? Was there any way that you found was the most effective way to crack open what the Word of God was saying for your exegesis and application? What, what was your... What was your way that well, you... Well, when I started off first, the... I had two sermons in the Bible study a week. And I had six mornings. And I'd split it up into... First morning, reading around the text, thinking around the text, pondering around the text. Second morning, writing the sermon out. And third morning, start again. Hmm. On the next sermon and third and fourth on that, and then and fifth and sixth on the other one. But I would read around the text, and think about the text, and then get on with it. Now, when I was preaching through a series of sermons, I might have five or six books on the go, on Galatians or Romans or something, and I would be, I'd spend the first day reading around these things and thinking around these things. And I know, I know some preachers who don't start doing some preparation till. Saturday. Now that would give me ulcers, I think. I'd like to be finished by Saturday, um, so that I'm ready in that sense anyway. Uh, I like to start pre preparing a sermon on Monday, or even on Sunday night, you're thinking about it, and you live with a sermon for a week. Right. And then when you preach out, it comes. Huh. But um, but the people the congregation have got to see that they, you've come from the presence of God, that you're not just the Spouting, you know, and uh, but you've come from the presence of God. Mm. And when God is there, I mean, I'll go back to rugby again. I, I, I was honestly amazed where the people were coming from. People were traveling in 20 and 30 miles on Sunday mornings um, to, to the services, and I thought, what were they coming for? Right. And, um, huh. and then they'd bring somebody else next week. And they, but if they feel that you've got something from God or a man from God, then that helps. There's a phrase about the Haggai again. The people had respect to Haggai as the Lord had sent him. They, they saw Haggai as sent by God. And if the congregation can see you as sent by God, then they listen to you. Mm. And, they, and they benefit from you, your ministry. And they'll pray for you. And that makes the vast difference, isn't it? When the congregation... It's praying for you. Mm. You mentioned uh, Tozer, and you've mentioned Machine and Lloyd Jones. I just want to ask, um, what did you learn from the ministry of Lloyd Jones in particular? Oh, I found the ministry of Lloyd Jones was staggering, really. Um, when I started college in 1963. We had no biblical theology taught us. 
and most of my theology came from Lloyd Jones. He started; he was just starting publishing books then. Yeah. I think the two volumes on the on the, on the Sermon on the Mount came out when I was in college, and other things like that. And uh, they are, I used to devour these books as they came out. But he gave you a sense of God when you listened to him preach. He gave you a sense of God. You felt you were in the presence of God. Mm. Um, someone said, you know, he took about two or three journeys up and on the runway before he took off. But when he took <laughs> off, wow, he was sorted. And um, and that was the case. And then when I learned again that, I mean, he was an exception man. Yeah. He, had, he had a brain. He could recall things. Oh, goodness, excuse me. He could recall things um, in detail, and he read so widely and devouring these things. But when he came to the pulpit, you could people could, children could understand what he was saying. And um, remember the famous story letters he had when he was ill. He said the one he prized most from a twelve-year-old girl mm. was saying, "Doctor, when you are able to come back, because I can't understand them, but I can understand you." <laughs> well, that's a tremendous compliment, isn't it? <laughs> tremendous compliment. And I think we could understand him. And, uh, um, Nehemiah talked about again. Nehemiah—they gave the sense of the passage. They read the scriptures, and they gave the sense of the passage to the people. And that's 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 of prime importance. That was one of the things I noticed about your preaching uh, when I first started listening to you. Was there was a simplicity? It wasn't complex. You weren't trying to uh, wow people, but. Although you had taken truths that could be made complex and made them simple, yet they were on fire. Um, they they were uh, there was a fire in it. There was a passion in it that was probably more powerful than uh, someone trying to make it complex. Mm. Um, well, I haven't got the brain to make things complex. I'm not complex, you know. I mean, I, I preach it as I see it, and uh, I see it simply, really, I suppose. Um, I don't like complex sermons, and uh, people should not take a dictionary to church, should they? The scripture should speak clearly, and then the language should be such that they can understand what's being said. And, and the illustration should be relevant to where they are now, not where the Victorians were a hundred years ago, you know. You mentioned um, Charles Spurgeon. Um, what, what did you learn from Charles Spurgeon's ministry? Well, Spurgeon was so different than Lloyd-Jones, you see. Now, Lloyd-Jones majored in series of sermons. Spurgeon didn't believe in preaching series of sermons. He wouldn't preach a series of sermons. Never did. He argued you could never know where God wants you to go next Sunday. <laughs> so he just preached one off. And um, <laughs> and I don't believe... Well, don't, don't, this is on the table. Eh? Shall I say this? Yeah. But I don't believe Spurgeon was an expository preacher, you see. Yeah. He, he didn't expound the word as Lloyd-Jones did. But... And he got to Christ as quickly as he could, and he took you with him. Right. And he exalted Christ and delighted in Christ. Right. And um, it was a joy to read those sermons. And um, Would you say that, therefore, the uh, preacher is really an individual? They shouldn't strive to be like somebody else. But um, would, Did you say that in your ministry you found that, that here you had Lloyd-Jones on the one hand, Spurgeon on the other hand, Tozer on the other would you say that you were like any of the three of them? Well, Toza was an old uh, folksy sort of preacher. The tapes I've heard of Toza. And um, old folksy sort of uh, 
Midwestern farmyard preacher. Um, wasn't polished or anything, <laughs> anyway at all. But again, he brought you to God. Yeah. And that's all that matters. They bring yeah. you to God. Yeah. They bring you to God. And, um, and, and if a sermon is meant to confront people with God, that's what it should be doing. And it should be full of God and full of Christ and full of the gospel. Mm. Um, I, 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 I like, I mean, I love hearing preaching. I think all preachers should love to hear preaching. And love to hear anybody else preaching. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we, we, we all go like that. We go to conferences and we are the best, as was at conferences, things like that. But, um, but there is something about, you, you started off with romance of preaching. There is something about preaching, you see, that's unique. Absolutely unique. Um, I was, I just, I was thinking, I told her I was converted 55 years ago last Saturday. And, um, on that Saturday, May, May 21st, 1955, I went on a train from Neath in South Wales up to Wembley Stadium in London to hear Billy Graham preach. And um, because the churches in South Wales were running a special train up, and my girlfriend, as she was then, my wife, as she is now, persuaded <laughs> me to go. And I thought, well, it's daft to go 200 miles to hear a sermon. I suppose in those days, I thought it's daft to go across the road to hear a sermon. Mm. But there's something about preaching, something about it that... Uh, when God is on it, there is nothing like it in all the earth. Nothing like it. Mm. You, you know, I preached a series of sermons on the 23rd Psalm. 18 sermons, I think, when you, when, when you Sunday mornings. 18 sermons. And I thought, well, boy, you've done that. You've preached the 23rd Psalm. You know the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> then I heard Douglas McMillan preach four sermons on the 23rd Psalm at the Aberystwyth Conference, and I thought, wow, I don't know anything about the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the four sermons he preached were out of this world. Mm. Uh, and the powerful, tremendous powerful. Mm. And I thank God for that. But that's what preaching is, you see. You think you've got it, and then there's something else. Mm. There's something else. And there's something else, and there's something else. Mm. And there's always more. How does a man know that he's called to preach and he's not being presumptuous or it's not his own ambition? Yeah. Well, all I can do is give my own experience of this, I suppose. I mean, I, I was preaching at 18, as I said, and I think it was ridiculous. I didn't know enough at 18 to preach. didn't know enough scripture to preach. Um, but I was preaching, and people in the church saw Paul Peter and the gift of the gab, and so they <laughs> stuck me in the pulpit. And I suppose, you know, the training was invaluable. But um, I think, as I, as I look back to that, I've been quite happy just to go on lay preaching Sunday by Sunday until God called me into the ministry. But I knew I was called to preach because I could preach. Now, it's different from a school teacher who's lecturing on geography or maths or history. Uh, teaching, lecturing is not preaching. And I had this ability to do that, I suppose. God-given. Had to be. Has to be. And um, I thank God for that. And when young boys come to me today, we had many in rugby. I lost count of the number of people who wanted to go and preach. And I would, I would never poo-poo them. I would say, all right, go away now. And write a sermon. And bring it back. And we'd go through it. And I'd say, okay, now when you're ready, preach this on a Thursday night meeting, midweek service. And sometimes it'd be disastrous. Mm. 
But uh, has to be tremendous. Mm. But you've got to give people a chance, you see. And in the end, if a man is called to preach, he's got to let the church test that call. Mm. But whether he can, he can preach, whether they, they feel he's drawing them to God or not. And if a man can preach, you recognize it soon when he preaches. There's a lot to be developed, there's a lot to be worked at. But he's got the gift of preaching, you can recognize that, I think. And um, you work at that. And I, I, I worked at it for, for, for a long time. I still do, in a sense, I suppose. Um, when, when I first got here, um, I was asked to speak at a, uh, a luncheon that was evangelistic that had started up during your ministry. And I was told to speak for 10 minutes. Now, as a Californian preacher, that was at least an hour shorter than what I was used to. I know when it is. 10 minutes. Uh, and I was told at that time, Peter was the master of the 10 minute sermon, emphasizing this that it doesn't have to be long to be powerful. It doesn't have to be over an hour, uh, to be used by God. But I remember asking you at that time, uh, Peter, how do you do it? And I remember your, your reply. I'll never forget it was in this room. You said, just stop men. <laughs> just stop. Stop at 10 minutes. And I, I wanted to ask you, you, your sermons typically almost right to the minute go to 30 minutes. And I would imagine that at some stage you would kind of hit a, a, a almost like a, a cadence or a, or, or a, a rhythm. Um, how would you advise a preacher who's trying to develop his uh, preparation so that he's not losing people after 30 minutes. Um, obviously, there, there are times where you can hold people longer, but, but if we're honest, a lot of us could trim some fat. How did you get into uh, the stride that you hit? Because I, I, I'll confess, when I listen to your sermons, I feel often there's not a wasted word. Um, how, how did you develop in that way? Well, I got to a point one time when I thought I was preaching too long. Now, in those days, I would my notes would be four sides of a of a sort of postcard, A3 paper, you know. So how would I get that short? I worked at it. I thought, I cut my sermon notes down from four pages to three pages. Mm-hmm. That was a simple thing. So instead of preparing for, to fill four pages, I prepared to fill three pages. Mm-hmm. And that worked to a, to a great degree. Because you can be too long. I don't think you can be too short. Oh, I know this is controversial, but especially in some circles, but I think preachers preach too long, you see. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and ten minutes in certain circumstances, I think in an open air meeting, five minutes is long enough, really. And if you go to an open, open Zoom at the end of a day, and you're preaching in a warm, stuffy lounge, <laughs> and these old ears are nodding off and snoring away, then ten minutes is very, very, very long. And you don't need any more than that. Um, but I usually work to preach between 30 and 40 minutes, um, mostly 30-ish. Um, and I would govern it by the notes. Mm. So I, I was tied to my notes, my terrible. <laughs> but uh, I could preach the same sermon 20 times, but I still have to have my notes on the 20th sermon right. time. Um, I probably wouldn't look at them, but I'd have to have them there for confidence, I suppose. Um, but... If you're going to preach for 10 minutes, you work at it. It's much long, much harder to preach a, prepare a 10-minute sermon than a 40-minute than a, than a sermon. Mm-hmm. 
I did a series of DVDs um, a couple of years ago, The Gospel in 10 Minutes, and uh, every one of those Gospel DVDs was 10 minutes long. Right. <laughs> and we thought we could give these away and people would listen to them in 10 minutes, and they'd throw them away probably. But, um, <clears throat> but I think for a student, for instance, to get into a pulpit on a Sunday morning and preach for an hour, I think it's arrogance. Mm. He can't do it. He's not Lloyd Jones, he's not Spurgeon. And mostly what they're doing is regurgitating last week's notes from college. Yeah. And they've had many, many of that. Um, but um, prepare is preparation. Preparation. And um, I remember hearing a preacher once and he and he was saying that he'd been given when he'd been given twenty minutes to speak. And he spent five minutes bemoaning the fact he'd been given 20 minutes to speak. <laughs> he should have shut up and gone straight down with it, you know. And not waste five minutes. But um, You mentioned preparation in, in, in any job, including ours. Um, the tools are, are very important. The tools of the trade, the things that we use. Obviously, you've mentioned already our walk with God is an indispensable tool. Um, prayer, uh, the prayer of the congregation, the minister's personal prayer is holiness. But on a very practical level, if we were to open up the preacher's kit bag, obviously we pull a Bible out. That would be the one of the, the, the most essential power tools. But what have been other essential tools that over the years you thought, man, if I had found this sooner, this particular book mm. or this particular uh, way of doing things, it would have helped me immensely. I wish I had found this sooner. Are there, are there any tools that you can pull out of the kit bag and, and recommend to other people? Books, maybe. Sermons, preachers. Well, there are books which, personally, I would use. I, I every Lloyd Jones book came out I got. Yeah. And um, and it was it was it was rich to read for yourself and and uh, and and to preach. And uh, I often said when I was preaching, was almost all I was doing was regurgitating Lloyd Jones. Um, but what what stuff to pull out, isn't it? And there are other preachers uh, books that lend themselves like that. You see, um, Weasby you mentioned. I find these books, would it be something, isn't it? Be, be this, be mm. Very good stuff for preaching and, and helping, helping you to prepare a sermon. And uh, I use them a lot. And, um, I, you know, those are the main ones. Lloyd Jones, mostly, I suppose. Um, and then there were other things. Matia was good. I like Matia's stuff and Packer. And um, they were books that fed my own soul. Mm. And if they fed my own soul, then they would feed the congregation soul. Mm. Um, but, but books are tools, other tools of the trade. I mean, I'd buy books galore. I must have had a couple of thousand of them. I've given just for all my best books away now because. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, by the way. No good. Then. Well, I give you a pile of piles of other preachers. It's no good having books on the shelf doing nothing. They must well be used again and again and again. And so we pass them on, don't we? And uh, that's what we do. Um, you mentioned Tozer earlier, and you you said that he was more like a country preacher. Um, he's been called uh, the, the the last of the Christian mystics, and I think he was a guy that, uh, as controversial as that term is, maybe people didn't understand it when they used it for him, but Tozer was a guy where he seemed as if uh, everything that he uh, preached as if he had been up on the mountain with God. Mm. Um, what, what did you personally gain from Tozer's ministry? These were all different guys. And what I'm getting at by asking these questions is, 
is they were such different men and such different preachers that surely they, they, they chiseled off bits of you or helped you develop in some ways. What did Tozer give to you? Well, Tozer helped me, I think, to speak to the congregation. He had a conversation with them in many ways. Mm. Um, I never saw Tozer as a powerful preacher. Uh, I never heard too many Tozer sermons, mind you. And, and then the quality wasn't a lot good with some of them on the recordings. But um, he could put his finger on the point in your life which needed pressing, mm. saying, look after this way, look after this. And um, he could put his finger on the, on, on the pulse of the church. He was doing that way before he had this thought about contemporary and traditional. I mean, he, he was traditional in many ways. It wouldn't be contemporary, I think, in, the, in terms of music or, mm. or things like that. But he could put his finger on, on these preachers who went around uh, in big cars and big hotels and things like that. You know, mm. he, he was a man who, who wanted to bring people to God again, again. I keep coming back to that. That's what he wanted to do, didn't he? Yeah. And um, and he knew what was right and what was wrong. You see, he he would talk about people really being convicted of sin. He had no time for these uh, glib decisions, you know. Uh, People put their hands up, and five minutes later they were they were back in the pub or whatever it was. He wanted people converted, changed, transformed by the Holy Spirit, and he saw that. That raises an interesting point. You mentioned about people raising their hands. Um, he didn't want that, and you also mentioned about uh, you wanted to reach people's hearts. You were a gifted evangelist. Uh, many people came to faith through your ministry. What? Would you say is the best advice you could give someone who, as Spurgeon called them, wants to be a soul winner? Mm. Um, obviously, every preacher is is caused, called to do the work of an evangelist. But what would you say uh, as far as uh, avoiding maybe doing altar calls? I know these are all just methods or different things, but I know you personally uh, didn't really do the altar calls. No, I didn't. Um, but did you find at a certain point in your preaching that, that there was something that was helpful, that maybe you weren't giving folks the opportunity um, to uh, believe or they didn't know what to do? Was there a certain point at which you thought, I, I need to tell them what to do, tell them how to come to Christ? Well, the preaching should do that, you see. The sermon should do that. But I know what you're talking about. I mean, um, I used to go into the vestry after the evening service because I... A gospel service, well, I always preached uh, to saints in the morning and sinners at the night. It was a teaching ministry in the morning and an evangelistic ministry every Sunday night. And after the evening service, I'd go in the vestry and I'd invite people to come and see me. And people did. But I, did, I, did, I would tell people not to come, just to say hello or talk about the, <laughs> yesterday's football match. But people were anxious about their souls. And yeah. uh, that happened. And um, and they came, or they would come to the house to see me. Mm. Um, but I found, you know, I led very few people to the Lord. Mm. In that sense, you know, yeah. they were converted to the preaching. Yeah. And the, we said, I know one lady, you know, we, and she came to me to be baptized, and uh, her husband and her had come to the church for some months. And uh, I assumed she was a Christian. Her husband certainly was a Christian. 
And I said, it's a long time you're getting about that. Oh, no, she said, only, only three weeks. <laughs> I said, three weeks? Yeah, three weeks. Well, I didn't know. But she'd been converted three weeks ago, you see. And, and, um, and I didn't give her four things God wants you to know or lead her to the Lord. Yeah. But God saved her. Yeah. And uh, still going on with the Lord. He, 20 or 30 years later. Um, and I would prefer that. There were times when I did uh, sit down with people and pray with people. And uh, we, we, we talked things through and we, we sought God together. And there were people in this room for weeks on end breaking their hearts and wanted to be saved. But in the end, they need to get alone with God. Yeah. And when they're alone with God, well, mm. yeah, I mean, it was happened. Mm. But I still believe the Holy Spirit is the best counselor. Yeah. And he will, he will bring them along. When you're in the pulpit, did you find that your illustrations came to you or did you spend a lot of time preparing them or was it a combination of both? No, they were all prepared. I mean, I'm going to have an odd illustration in the pulpit as I was preaching perhaps. But my illustrations came out of life, really. They were, they were my illustrations in the sense they were fresh, part of my experience of life and of God. Um, sometimes I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning with this illustration in my mind, you know. Um, I know your book, Windows on Truth, uh, is exactly like that. They, I, I remember the illustration about the passport not being able to travel yeah, because yeah. you didn't have the passport. Use that as an illustration for Christ. Um, I noticed that you did that a lot, and I, I found that really uh, refreshing that a, a Reformed Evangelical was using everyday uh, things. Like you said, it, it wasn't stuck back in, say, the just stealing the illustrations of the Puritans. The Puritans dug for their own goal. Yeah. And well, you yes, and you, you, everybody's got to do it in their own way. Um, I mean... You know, life is full of illustrations. When I missed the plane from Los Angeles home because I got the time of the plane taking off wrong, you know, and we got to the to the airport three hours after the plane had gone. <laughs> and uh, that was one of the best summer decisions I've ever had, you know. Take care of the details. Because huh. you've got a journey coming up and you take care of the details, check mm -hmm. the details. And it was a simple, simple thing, but uh, there's so many illustrations that are important, I think. Um they windows of truth, as the title of that book was, windows of truth, and they should they meant to point people to, to the full truth of the gospel. Hmm. What about uh, application? Um, I, I think the hardest <clears throat> thing for most young pastors to grab hold of is the fact that this truth needs to be applied. Um, obviously, the Spirit will do his work mm. in people's hearts as well and, and personalize much of the truths that you're preaching. But um, your sermons are also very practical. And I I would imagine that that takes work and was probably something that you had to work hard at. I don't know. I think that's the way I am. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think you've got to preach the sermon and apply it all the way through. Like the appeal, for instance. The appeal starts the moment you give your text out. It's not something tagged on at the end of the sermon. You give your text out, and, and, and you, you call people to come to Christ, and you show them how to come. Um, and why, they, what happens if they don't come? It's all part of it, isn't it? And so, so too with the application, in terms of holiness and things like that. 
uh, on obedience and fellowship and things like that. Um, you've got to think these things through. I mean, you're back to preparation, you see. I used to tell my people in rugby particularly, don't phone me between 9 and 12 any morning. <laughs> I mean, the study between 9 and 12, I don't want phone calls, unless it's absolutely urgent, you know. And don't die on Tuesdays. And I don't die on Tuesdays because my day off. <laughs> but uh, but let's that's, that's have the morning free to, you know, you're going to be uh, seeking God and phone rings and you, you're only five minutes on the phone, but you've lost an hour. Aye, aye. It's interesting because if I look at your sermons, there there is somewhat of a pattern. I don't know if you if you prepared in this where you had a structure or an outline to your sermon, but... Uh, without overanalyzing, because it, it, it probably is just the way you present truth, but there would be truth, illustration, and application. And that, that seems to come in your preaching in waves. You don't seem to leave people um, point by point without understanding it through a window on the truth and then applying it, driving it home. Mm. Was that intentional, or is that just the way you developed? I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't know it was like that. I just, you know, people seem to find my preaching understandable, and um, they could they could relate to it, and that 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 staggered me too. I suppose. Same with the books, you see. I mean, several people have told me you're the only writer I know who writes the same way as he preaches, Aye. and um, it's the it's the only way I know. Yeah, it seems to be the obvious way. You you you. You apply the truth to the lives of people where they are, whether they're in the steelers, in a school, in an office, in a shop. You apply the truth so it comes home to them. And then they, they got to think it through themselves then and um, take it up with God. Mm. I think that's one of the big pitfalls as a preacher is because we are swimming in these truths and reading these books. We often don't realize that uh, the people that are listening to us, they're not. And they can't handle that. It is much, much harder to write like you write, where you're writing with a crystal clarity and a simplicity for the housewife to understand and grow in her knowledge of Christ and for her life to actually change. Unless we understand, uh, we don't change. And I, I would say that uh, in your preaching, there's that real clarity. There's a focus. There's a, a clarity. You know why that is? God didn't give me too many brains, you see. <laughs> And it's and I I I churn it out as I see it, you know, mm. and I see it simply, and I churn it out like that. I couldn't write a profound book to save my life, you know. But um, that's a great know. encouragement to most of us because most of us don't feel that we have the equipment or the hardware that Lloyd Jones had. We've oh, got great software available. Who does? But, who does? But uh, that's an encouragement because I think you know that there is this misunderstanding that you have to be brilliant to uh, to preach well. But I do think there is a type of brilliance in taking profound truth, and, and let's face it, we're, we're preaching the gospel, uh, the mystery of the gospel, but making things simple and plain. It, it, it is a challenge and something to, to keep aware of. I think a lot of guys could learn from your preaching that simplicity and power uh, is a dangerous tool in, in the hands of God. Oh, and um, okay. as as I look um, at, at preaching, obviously there's times where with preparation, uh, with uh, prayer, there's still times you're in the pulpit and it all goes pear-shaped. Mm. The, the bottom falls out. It all goes mm. wrong. 
I'm guessing that you've had those moments. Oh, goodness. What what would be your advice in those times? Would you stop and pray? Would you what 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 do you do when you're there and that sweat, that bead of sweat starts dripping down your face because you know something's going wrong? Well, I remember once preaching a sermon. I know it was a marvelous blessing. It really took off. Then the following week I was preaching someone else. I preached, I preached the same sermon. <laughs> the word I said. Yeah. Flat as a pancake. And I was telling a friend of mine this. He said, ah, oh, Peter, he said, the problem was this. He said, the first time we preached the sermon, we trusted God. Mm. The second time we trusted the sermon. Mm. And I almost forgot. I always remember that. Don't trust the sermon. <laughs> trust God. Um, and you can have the best sermon in the world and then go flat. Or you can have a, an empty sort of thing. I remember when my daughter was converted, you know, Diane. Diane at 15 was an atheist. It's hard against her, you know, to be an atheist at 15, isn't it? <laughs> but there you go, she was, she was an atheist. She, we had a trouble every Sunday getting her to church. She didn't want to go, she didn't want to go. And it was this end of a long summer and end of a long year, you know, again. We were going on the holidays the following week and I, I struggled with the sermon. I, 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 well, I, well, I, 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 I much posh there were three sermons together, I think, just to get this last sermon and I was going to get away for the month and I was looking forward to it. And it wasn't all, all right, as a husband. I, I preached it and Diane was converted <laughs> in an arch porch of a sermon. <laughs> and, um, and if you ever <laughs> show me the sovereignty of God in, 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 in that, that did. Mm. Um, but it wasn't much of a sermon. Wow. And I never preached it since because, because, um, it was a one-off in a sense. Yeah. There's no way you could preach it again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's part of that romance you're talking about, isn't it? That, uh, and, and would you say that the preacher usually isn't a very good judge about how things have come across to the congregation? Well, yes, you, you, you know, I knew a friend of mine once, a very good friend who worked as assistant pastor, and he was the worst critic of his own preaching. Mm. And he was, he was a, Gifted preacher. He really was a gifted preacher. And he would come down, oh, oh, I do one very good. And I, I did it myself, and it was superb. Yeah. And uh, I think that's wrong. I think that's sinful in a sense. I keep telling you that. Don't minimize what God is doing, you know. Aye. But, uh, and sometimes you feel you've got a good sermon and, and, and uh, congregation being flat. You come back to the point, trust God. Mm. Trust God. Do your work. Prepare. Pray. Trust God. You can't go beyond that. What advice would you give to a young guy just starting out? What what, what kind of uh, indispensable counsel would you give to anyone starting? Don't bother. <laughs> I would hate to be started today. I think it's much harder. I was ordained in 1963, and it was much. It's much harder today for young men. My grandson's being ordained now in a couple of months, and it'll be much harder for him than it was for me. Mm. Um, though he's had a better preparation for the ministry than I ever had, so that's good. Hmm. And he's gifted, that's good. But there's no respect for the pulpit today as, as there was 50 years ago. And um, But for the young man, just get, get right with God. Hmm. Get right with God. I think the ambition any young man should have is to be usable. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he might be an ordinary preacher or a great preacher, but
but he needs to be a usable creature so that mm. God can take him up and use him. You know, you, you look at David Morgan in the 1859 revival in Wales, an ordinary preacher, Presbyterian minister, went to bed like a lamb and woke up like a lion, Aye. and the spirit came on him. Aye. And for a couple of years in the revival of 1859, mightily used. Yeah. We've got to be usable. Mm. And if we're not usable, we can be the best preachers in the world. And all that happens is that our very gifts get in the way of the Spirit. Mm. Get in the way of God coming and speaking through us. What would you say is the thing that makes a man the most usable? Is there any one quality in a preacher? I think you're back to that prayer of McShane, you see, make me as holy as it's possible for a sinful man to be. Mm. That's what, what makes us usable. You see, how holy is holy? And <laughs> there's no end to it, there's no limit to it. Aye. Make me to walk with God. Mm. That doesn't mean perfect. I mean, there's no such thing as perfection mm. uh, in, 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 in that sense. But um, it means I'm, I'm willing to be used by God. I'm willing to be, to be taken up by God, to be a fool for Christ's sake, says Paul. Mm. I'm willing for all these things. I remember a time in rugby again. I, I've often looked back at this with great regret. We were at the peak of a great bless, time of blessing. And I got into the pulpit one Sunday night, and I had an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. Mm. We've known it before, but never quite like that. And I was afraid. And I'm conscious of stepping back. And I, and I believed at that moment I quenched the Spirit. Yeah. And I look back with, with deep regret on that many, many times. Mm. God is good and God overlooks our shortcomings. Praise the Lord for that. But don't do that. Go with God. Right. Go with God. Can you remember that night when, when you got a bit afraid? Was there a, a, a fear of... What, what was it that was causing you to I be don't afraid? Know. I don't know whether I was afraid of how the congregation would respond or how my own lack of sanctification would get in the way. I don't know. I don't know. Huh. It was just a sense of God is coming. Am I ready for this? Am I ready for this? We'll never be ready. Right. We'll never be ready. What we're going to do is to yield to God when he draws near. It's a, it's a very good word because I, I would imagine... Uh, that there's someone who's going to hear this who's going to be in that same exact position and is going to remember that. That I've heard someone say uh, years later, I regret that. And perhaps that will turn the tide for them at that moment to help them make the decision to yield themselves fully mm -hmm. to the Spirit. Um, are there any other regrets that uh, that you've had over the years? Things that you would... Again, you know, we, we, we sometimes learn from our own mistakes, but sometimes we learn from the mistakes of others. And, um, Peter, you're humble enough. You've always been so down to earth that uh, there's no putting on of errors. And uh, hearing your sermons is, is just always a, a powerful experience for me. But I've always been struck of, of how human you are. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's valuable for folks to hear you just say, well, look, this is, these are other things I regret, things I could have maybe be applied sooner. Are there any other things that come, that come to mind? I regret I wasn't more, I haven't been more prayerful in 50 years. That I haven't 
been as close to God as I ought to be. Mm. I regret. And I was still tripping over the same, same sins now that I was tripping over when I was converted. <laughs> same things tripped me up. Mm. Um, well, there's so many things, you know. I mean, let me just say, you look back and say, well, I walk with the Lord and, and he took me all the way. And I never kicked. But yeah. we do. We kick, kick against the pricks. Paul did <laughs> before he was converted. And, and as he said, not that I've attained brethren or am, or am perfected. Yeah. And it's it's amazing because we, we do walk around with this idea that um, men that are used powerfully of God are perfect. And I love that scripture where Peter at the temple gate called Beautiful says, Men of Israel, why do you look at us? as though we, by our own yeah. power or godliness, made this man walk. And I, I think sometimes it's, it's, would you say it's an encouragement for people to see God using us so powerfully, and yet at the same time seeing how human we are? Yeah, well, Peter went on in that same passage in Acts 3 to say, such as I have, I give to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've got to do. I've got to give what I've got, and you've got to give what you've got. Mm -hmm. And... What I've got depends on my relationship with God hmm. and my capacity to take in what God wants to... God's got infinite, infinite resources to pour into my life. Aye. And the more I take in, the more I can give out. And Peter gave what he, what he could and up, up, up got the feather and walked. And, but um, no, I think in the end it comes... It all comes back to this business of this, your own personal walk with God. Aye. And... Um, Really quickly, because you um, you've helped me loads. In fact, our our relationship really started after I heard you preach back in the states, where I needed advice from a pastor and couldn't talk to anyone in my circle. And so I I, I remember first off being surprised that you wrote me back because that would have never happened in California. A, a pastor wouldn't take the time of day to write a minister he didn't know, and I, that was the first thing that shocked me. Is you actually. Uh, responded. You didn't know me from Adam, but but talking about when we step out of the pulpit, and now we're in the congregation, you've, you're obviously a veteran, uh, you've pastored three churches, um, in some cases you've you've gone into uh, churches that are legendary for difficulty, um, and, and you've, you've uh, uh, handled it well. What would be um, your advice in dealing, or your thoughts in general, about opposition in the ministry, and the best way to deal with those? When you start off by accepting the fact you're always going to get opposition. Always. My, my grandson was voted on to be assistant pastor recently, and he didn't get a 100% vote. And I said to him, listen, boy, I said, if you're calling the Apostle Paul, you wouldn't get a 100% vote. <laughs> Any church, nobody satisfied with everything. And some of the criticism is just negative. It comes from people who are, who are small people, and they can't think biblically, and you've got to try and take it as it comes. Other of the criticism comes from people who really know what they're talking about, and you can learn from them. Mm -hmm. Often said that some criti some criti critics are, um, criticism I would take of some I wouldn't take of others. Um, but the difficulties, well, as part and parcel of the work, Paul had enough difficulties, isn't he? Why? Christ certainly didn't have difficulties. 
Paul dealing with the church, and I've to difficulties with the difficulties he had with, with the Corinthian church. Goodness. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have difficulties. And there's no point in thinking everything's going to be great. But remember, <laughs> I used to go to the Minister's Fellowship when I was in my first church, and some of the boys, men, would start talking about the problems they were having. I used to think, I said, well, I don't, I don't have any of those problems. <laughs> I don't have any of these problems. And I thought, What's wrong with me? Not having any problems. <laughs> and then one out of the blue, I had an enormous problem, which meant I had to leave the church because of it, you know. Oh. And I, it all comes sooner or later. Yeah. And when it comes, you're back again with God. Amen. Back again, relying on the Lord, and uh, the Lord opening the doors for, for, for some other pastor. Mm. Um, but oh, don't worry about problems. Paul had them. And... Um, I lose not heart. This is phrase three or four times in one chapter. We do not lose heart. He Sometimes uh, those problems really have a way of putting you in the next place where you're meant to be, and we don't always trace a hand of God in those things. No, well, the problems I had in rugby in Cumberland led me to be going to rugby, and and, and that's when the blessing started. Really, yeah. fourteen amazing years in rugby. Um, I often look back and think, well, why did the Lord just call me to rugby? As he'd call anybody else, why do we have to go through all those problems in Cumbran at the end of the end of the uh, my ministry there? But there we are. But you would say, as you said something very telling there, that but those are the times you're back with God. Mm. And uh, did you find that that through those difficulties you were driven really to the feet of not only as you say, I mean, they come to the point in, again in, in Cumbran where I was. I used to wake up on Sunday mornings hating Sunday. Aye. I didn't want to get into the book. I didn't want to preach. Aye. And I was going out to the ministry. I was going to become a probation officer. I had a place in Aston University to try to be a probation officer. I'd had enough of the ministry, I'd had enough of it all. And then God began to deal with me again and, uh, and show me that, like, what, he, what he wanted me to do was to preach. Mm. And um, then the rugby came. And, How did that happen, Peter? You said rugby. that God showed you. Um, but the strange I, thing was a dark time for you, isn't it? Oh, awfully dark, dark time. And we were in Cumbran, and we'd come down to Swansea on the Easter Monday, I think it was. The evangelical one of us were in a rally, and uh, Andrew Davis was preaching. Hmm. Now, Andrew wasn't preaching on anything particularly relevant to my situation, hmm. but he preached with such power and authority. Hmm. I sat there, that's what I want to be doing. Hmm. And I came home. I said to Lana, we're not going to be a probation worker. We're going to stay in the ministry. <laughs> and when I got home, there was a, there was a letter from Aston University accepting me. And that seemed to complicate matters again, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there was a phone call soon after from rugby, and I never even heard of rugby um, other than the game. And um, just, George just opened the door for me to go to rugby. Hmm. And um, off, off we went. And from, you see, rugby, we started rugby in September with, with a congregation of 50, by Christmas yeah. it was 100, by the following Christmas it was 200, huh. and in a couple of years it was 300. And God just blessed and blessed and blessed. But it wasn't always like that. I got to the point where I just didn't want the ministry. Mm. Someone asked Spurgeon once, have you ever thought of resigning from the ministry? <laughs> About twice a month, he said. <laughs> I thought, well, that's encouraging. That's great. Peter, thank you very much for this time. Um, appreciate it. 
it's been something years in the in the, in the thinking although uh it's only mm. taken us an hour and a half to to nail it down but want to uh thank you for the privilege of being able to do this and uh for you taking the time and kicking this down that's been something you've done over the years with not just myself but uh other young men um investing in others passing on the baton like Paul the Timothy and uh others and so um on behalf of them and myself want to thank you okay thank you remember if you are called the church planting go hardcore or go home you've been listening to hardcore church planting Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.